Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. So there are lots of ways the role of spiritual companionship manifests, and SDI celebrates the diversity of practices and people who identify as one. But how does one identify or see themselves and others as a spiritual companion? In April 2020's Listen publication, Executive Director Reverend Seifu Anil Singh Malaris wrote a reflection called The Dimensions of Spiritual Companionship. These are a series of characteristics and skills that a companion lives into and practices in their life. What are the characteristics of a spiritual companion? Reverend Seifu's various dimensions invite us to consider this. And I think it's important to note that one need not embody all of these dimensions. But I think each one should give us some pause, at least, in which one might consider, how do I practice this dimension? How do I embody it? How do I live it out? In an ongoing series of episodes, Reverend Seifu and I will have conversations around each of these dimensions as a way to unpack and get to know each of them in depth. And as you listen, I invite you to consider each for yourself. The way that you understand each dimension need not reflect how we understand it. But I hope that these conversations spark either a knowing within you or a good curiosity. Committed to mutuality. Spiritual companionship is a two-way street. And as with most successful relationships, it is most fruitful when our pre-assigned roles start to fade away and we start to melt into each other. That is when the false difference between self and others disappears and we are swept into God's embrace together. That gets very beautiful and poetic there. At first, it's very practical. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the relationship between partners is another good analogy, right? Where for the relationship to work, mutuality has to be in there, which is, to speak about it in strictly utilitarian terms, which of course is just one way to look at it, it means I have to get out as much out of this relationship as you do for it to work. Otherwise, there's an imbalance, and over time, that imbalance is going to become more and more problematic. And the very same thing is true with spiritual companions and the people that we companion. It is also true between teachers and students, right? Even with that imbalance, the best teachers, and I have been one like you, is where your student says something, or a student says something, or a bunch of students say something, and you go, I have never thought of that. Wow, that is really good, right? You've taught me something. I'm the teacher, but you've really taught me something today. And the same thing is true with spiritual companions and the people we encounter, that as they unfurl and they approach their God or their Krishna or their Buddha or their universe or their nature, whatever it is, we learn something along with them. They allow us in to their embrace. Same thing with little children, like a five-year-old who is still close enough to and fluid enough, has not become constricted, which is a byproduct of our education in our society, and is still flowing loosely and says something like, 
wow, look at that ray of sun coming in through the window. Isn't that beautiful? And you look at it and you go, wow, that is really beautiful. I had not recognized the ray of sun in that way until I heard that child call attention to it because I've forgotten how to appreciate it. So I think mutuality is key. We're in this together, I guess is what I'm saying. And what I said in that quote is, how could we be anything else but together? You and I are part of one being. We're part of one fabric. You and I and everybody else on this planet and all of the animals and all of the atoms of the universe are all part of one fabric. The false sense of distinction between me and you is exactly that. It's false anyway. So building that in is beneficial, it's respectful, it's accountable, and it's also wondrous. Yeah, it is wondrous. And it opens up just a new way of thinking about how one receives teaching and wisdom instead of, for those who identify as being on a spiritual path, there's a, a longing to have a teacher, a desire to have somebody to look up to, to mentor, to offer guidance and wisdom and all of that. But it's easy to get wrapped up in needing that relationship. And by doing what you're saying, I think we open ourselves to teaching everywhere. There's teaching all around us. I think of my son when he was two years old. I relayed the story a bunch. Like when I was starting to get into walking as a spiritual practice, so my son was like two, and if we walked to the post office or the grocery store, I was always in a hurry. And my son would keep finding like a cigarette butt or a piece of garbage or like a caterpillar. It's just like the little things that you see, you know, and he'd be like, oh, let's look at this. Like, let's pay attention to this. This is really interesting. And me being like the impatient adult would be like, come on, we got to go. Like, we got a place to go. and Things to do. I'm busy and I'm in a hurry. And... Gray became a teacher for me in patience and presence and going slower, you know, sort of having children forces you to do that and we can be frustrated by it or we can allow it to happen and pay attention to the teaching that's there. Yeah, absolutely. What you were just saying also prompts another thought for me, which is one of the things that we as spiritual companions and directors learn through true mutuality with the people who come to us is vulnerability. Vulnerability is an act of courage and an act of bravery, really, to expose ourselves, to reveal ourselves to ourselves and to others, especially to someone that we may not know particularly well, at least initially, as spiritual companion, as spiritual director. And that vulnerability has so much to teach us because we keep so many things buried and suppressed as human beings as we walk through our lives because we've been taught to be a certain way, to be tough, to be forceful, to be directive, to be purposeful, whatever it is that we've been taught, rather than to acknowledge the unknown, to acknowledge our vulnerability, to acknowledge our mortality. And so that's certainly something that we can learn from children, as you were saying, for your own son. But we can also learn from people who are vulnerable and courageous enough to wrestle with those really primordial metaphysical questions, which is, I'm about to die. Where am I going? What does this mean? 
You know, what does this mean about my life? And what does this mean about my death? So that kind of mutuality, I think, is also uh, a wonderful gift that we receive as companions and directors from the people who come to us. So allowing space for that vulnerability and being ready to receive it. Practical question. If we're just all equals, all walking each other home, as Ramdas said, why should someone pay for spiritual companionship? I think I know the answer to this, but... Well, yes, of course you do. Why, why should someone pay for food or water or air or a home or anything, right? And we're all human beings and we all have our fundamental human rights. And I think a connection with the universe, the beyond or God, is certainly one of the most primordial expectations or rights that any person has. But the reality of the world that we live in is we need to pay for the roof over our head. We need to pay for our food. We need to pay for our lodging. And spiritual companions do undergo some significant training as you're undergoing right now, as you've been undergoing even before you joined a particular program, right? This is a lifelong journey where you bring to bear lots of different things that you've worked hard on. And yes, it's a gift in some ways, and it should be a gift but it's also okay to be compensated for the work that you perform. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. I always use a sliding scale. That's always my response, which is mm -hmm. those who can afford it should pay more. And those who can't afford it, some of them should receive spiritual direction and spiritual companionship for free. Yeah. You're not paying for the person to be a director or a teacher. You're paying for them because they're trying to hold the space for me. I'm paying a spiritual director because I recognize my need to have that space held so that I can unspool my spiritual story and hear that out loud so that I can discern where I am at. So I think of it that way. And it's such a vital practice. Another form of neutrality, really, I think, is to... See how much you need that in yourself as much as a companion is offering that to others. SDI is a member-supported global contemplative movement that contributes to peace, justice, and living in right relationship with all creation. Your membership supports this podcast, publications, educational programming, outreach, and more. Together, we're changing the world through the contemplative action of spiritual direction. Everyone is welcome to become a member at SDI. Membership benefits include a listing in our worldwide resource for available spiritual companions called Find a Spiritual Companion Guide, and newly announced access to group spiritual companionship sessions through, via Zoom, exclusive access to town halls and SDI gatherings, subscriptions to Presence Journal, and so much more. Become a member today by visiting our website, sdicompanions.org, and click on Members. There is a spiritual companion, a very seasoned one, who runs, we spoke about this, kind of in a peer uh, discussion, and he said that when you pay to get spiritual companionship, spiritual direction from someone, 
you're actually paying yourself. And what he meant by that is that you are valuing what that person is bringing you in terms of the opportunity to learn, to grow, to learn how to climb that mountain on your own. And look at the things that we value in our lives that, you know, the money that we throw away on futile exercises or bad habits or actually addictions that do us harm and do the people that we love and the people around us harm, as opposed to a relationship that is really meant to help us position ourselves in our proper places relative to infinity, relative to ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning. What price would you pay for that? Mm. What price would I pay for that? Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say we probably would pay a pretty high price. Yeah, for sure. When we really get down to it. Unpack this one for me. The false difference between self and others disappears and we're swept into God's embrace together. How does one identify that false difference between self and other and begin to remove it? Yeah, well, I'm a Zen priest, and there's a very Buddhist lens on that one, but it's not uniquely Buddhist. It's true of mystics in all of the world's religions, right? Which is the sense that I'm Seifu, and I have my own attributes and my own unique background and my own unique characteristics, and I am unique and separate and distinct from you, Matt, and you have your own unique attributes and your own upbringing and your own gifts and skills, and you are very distinct and very separable from me. And although that appears to be the case on the surface, that's not really true. We have far more things in common that we do than separate us. Yes, we do have different skills and attitudes and backgrounds and, and whatnot, but the false division between self and other is this false sense of ego. The whole notion that I stand alone in the universe as a discrete being, separate from all of God's creation, rather than what seems far more obvious, even intellectually, and certainly intuitively, which is, what are you talking about? We're all part of the same fiber, the same fabric of the universe, and we're all interwoven and interdependent. In Buddhism, we talk about interdependence, not codependence, interdependence. And we're actually interwoven with each other. In some sense, it's not me having a conversation with you. It's the two of us having a conversation with everybody across all time and space. It's the universe speaking to itself. Mm. You and I are speaking to ourselves as the universe. It's the universe speaking to ourselves. Yeah. So I think that's the false illusion between self and others. And once that illusion falls away... We recognize what has always been true and what will always be true, which is we are part of the universal fabric. Your intuiting of that deep mutuality, I would say, is I don't intuit it. It's something that when you talk about it, it's interesting to me. It resonates with me. It feels novel because I am not Buddhist and I have been raised in a Western culture embedded in the Cartesian myth, right? I think, therefore, I am, and I am a self, and I inhabit a body, and I am me, and all the world is other. And you are able to see that as being totally false, and I have learned enough to know that that is false. It's something that I am working on actively, I put it that way. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I think it's a penalty that all human beings suffer, right? And some some cultures have a different framing on it. Some some religions have a different framing on it. But it's the curse and blessing of our intellects, right? That we apprehend everything through our head rather than through our heart or our soul. And there's a place for our head, of course, but ultimately. It's not the only thing, nor necessarily even the primary thing that unites us. And there's plenty of theologians, I'm thinking of Aquinas or Anselm or Augustine, you know, in, in the Catholic tradition, that highly intellectual, highly erudite, and who spend these very, very complex theologies, which I study with great passion, that lead to that place where ultimately they go, everything is just a mystery after all, isn't it? Right? We know nothing after all, don't we? Yeah. And so I think anybody who is blessed to have an intuitive insight, which we all do as children, but to remember those intuitive insights, regardless of whatever tradition or religion you come from, it comes to the same place, which is, lo, behold, the majesty, the, the awe of the universe of God revealed to you. And be humble and submit and be accepting and be grateful. And so I think that's really where I'm going with the sense of mutual reverence, if you will. Yeah, and I sense that too. This conversation you said, it's almost like the universe is is in dialogue with itself through you and I having this conversation. It's like there's an ongoing dialogue that God has with God. And that feels, it just feels special. I hope that our conversation has stirred something in you. I invite you to take a moment to reflect. How do you identify with this dimension of spiritual companionship? Does it feel natural? Does it feel elusive? How does this dimension manifest in you? Is it something you desire to increase for yourself? I invite you to take a few breaths and tend to that stirring. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.